0: Hello and welcome to the Poplar PropCast. Uh, I'm Justin Libert. I'm your host. This is the first part of a two-part episode. We're kind of breaking up this story about Pullman, both because it takes a a little bit of time to digest and get through, but also because we are going to be at NARPM National next week. So that's the National Association of Real Property Managers. So if you're there, come and find us. We're probably wearing an orange jacket and talk to people on the floor. Enjoy this episode episode of the poplar podcast. Hello, and welcome to the poplar Propcast. I am Justin Limerick, your host. Today, we're going to be talking about where do people work and live, how they choose where to work and live, and how that affects all kinds of things. From an investor's point of view, it's where you kind of try and predict where the trends are going and invest well so that when people move, you're there. In recent work from home space, we've seen this giant shift from city centers to more urban living, Um, that's continuing to kind of push people out to places they wouldn't normally live because it doesn't have the business that they're aligned with. But with thought workers and mental workers kind of being able to work in more places, that's definitely a shift. So when we look at the history of how work and home kind of intertwine, there's... Huge shifts, depending on what the ability is for people to move around. You know, you get to the point at the very beginning when it's, you're working in your field. So you are working from home because your farm is your home and your home is your farm and your food comes straight out of the ground. You start to get specialized and then it starts changing where you work and where you live changes. Um, These are all things that I'm sure that just from a very loose philosophical space you've thought of and you've, you've had ideas about why you want to live in a particular place, whether or not that commute is worth it for you, and then what the cost of living is related to your salary in that area. These are pretty common analyses when you're looking to buy a home, when you're looking to move, when you're moving for work, when you're moving for school. They all kind of stack up and sit there and kind of influence the individual. Now, as investors or as homeowners, that can have a profound effect on the value of your assets what things are nearby we've talked to people who are near um the chip fabs that are going on in ohio we've talked to people that are near uh, well nevada with the big shift in california people coming here to work we've seen it in um, idaho and many other places uh, places in texas all over the us it's happening right now there's this shift there's this split in the news just in the last couple of days um, meta which used to be Facebook, Facebook is now called Meta because Zuckerberg's making a play for VR. Uh, He sunk billions of dollars into VR headsets. And Meta, Zuckerberg specifically came out and said, hey, when you're having meetings for work, I don't want you to have them in Teams. I don't want you to have them in Google Meets. I don't want you to have them in Facebook groups. I want you to have them in Meta. Quote from Yahoo Finance, well, point of order. Problem was a lot of them didn't have the equipment they needed to do it or if they didn't have the equipment they hadn't set them up. Here's a here's a quote from Yahoo Finance. Uh, Zuckerberg told employees this year to have their meetings on Meta's Horizon Workrooms app, where people can come together as avatars in virtual workspaces, a person familiar with the matter told the New York Times. The source, who remained anonymous, told them that many Meta employees didn't have VR headsets this year or hadn't gotten around to setting them up, Those staff then had to rush to purchase headsets and register them before their managers realized, the source told the Times. The kicker to all of this is that Meta increased the price of its Quest 2 by $100 in August from two ninety nine dollars to $3.99. Quest 2 was first known as the Oculus Quest 2 when it launched. Meta changed its name to Meta Quest 2 because Meta. It's branding everything Meta. The surprising part here is one that managers didn't even know they'd had them set up or didn't have them because they hadn't... They, the managers hadn't been organizing stuff in Horizon's workroom app Whatever the meta piece is. So the, the managers weren't doing it either. And then the other side of it that's funny is that they didn't give them the headset. They said you have to do it in um, Horizon Workrooms on your quest. But you don't have a quest and you have to buy one. And we just raised the price. Keep that in mind because that's going to play right into, um, right into what we're talking about with some of these bigger things that have happened in the past. But I, I do want to say one thing on meta slash facebook side is that using the company's product is a good idea it helps people selling and making the product to be aware of what it can do what it can't do its capabilities kind of and shortcomings but mandating involvement in a product or some criteria of your life while at that company can get very problematic you have this space where all of a sudden as a condition of employment you have to make an expenditure right and so a lot of times that's not a big deal. You have to buy gas to get to work. You have to have internet if you're working at home. There's normal stuff. You have you have to wear the right clothes at work and you have to have the right work shoes. If you're a server or cook, you need non-stick or non-slip shoes. If you're in construction, you need steel-toed boots and hard hats and orange jackets. Some of those are provided by your employer, some of them you provide. I don't think it's it's problematic to have general requirements for work but when you say (laughs) you when you work here the only boot you can buy is our boot and we raise the price of our boot by fifty dollars last month and we're going to raise it by fifty dollars next year just because we know all our employees have to buy the boot that feels predatory right it feels there's a conflict there that i want to keep you in mind that we want you to keep in mind as we talk about work-life balance and kind of business and home so another one that's really interesting and plays in the same spot is this new one that nevada's thrown out there so nevada's trying to entice smart cities areas where a tech partner's in control instead of a local government so basically if zillow wanted to build a city in the desert and say everybody in this city has to do xyz as a condition of living in the city it sounds like they want to let that happen um here's a quote from mind matters the proposed legislation draft calls traditional forms of local government inadequate in their ability to provide the flexibility and resources conducive to making the state a leader in attracting and retaining new forms and types of businesses in order to create such a zone a company would need to submit an application to the governor's office of economic development once approved the company could begin development of any purchased undeveloped and uninhabited land of at least 78 square miles with expectation that it would invest 1 billion dollars within the first 10 years after an initial investment of 250 million dollars the zone would be overseen by a three-member board of supervisors appointed by the governor holding the same power as county commissioners to impose taxes establish schools and courts and provide government services city governments have been experimenting with these smart cities for years and political power cedes some power to technological corporations so they can implement advanced technology throughout a city nevada's proposed innovation zone takes that idea a step further by handing over political power to a corporate entity so that switch with that much room 78 square miles that's that's a big chunk of change like uh, think about san francisco right san francisco is famously about seven miles by seven miles so san francisco the city is about 49 square miles so bigger than San Francisco, the city, not the whole Bay Area, but the city, that's massive. That's a giant, giant corporate city. Like I'm, I'm just staggered by the size and the thought of this. I'm really curious because when you're getting into that level of money and that level of investment, I mean, think about the people that could try and do it. You've got Apple, uh, Tesla, maybe um, Facebook could probably do it. Um, Berkshire Hathaway might <laughs> might jump into that space and, and go for it, but they're not a tech company. But th- that's, that's a phenomenal kind of approach to go, yeah, try something new. You know, Google could build out a whole city to test fiber and robot cars. And so as a condition of living in the city, you have to buy fiber from Google and you have to buy a robot car from Google. And they get all the data from all of that to see how you're using it and how they behave. If that's possible. That's what they're talking about. So this has happened in the past, too. Um, Probably the one most people have heard of is Epcot Center. So Disney's plan there and what Epcot stands for is Experimental Prototype City of Tomorrow. The idea was to build the perfect city. Um, This is a quote from an article in Morning Brew talking about why he wanted to do this. So, Disney was often frustrated with modern city living. He reportedly grumbled about being woken up by garbage collectors in the morning and rolled his eyes at the general dirtiness of Los Angeles. So, there's something there that I think we can associate with, right? So, I live on a street where people have uh, gardeners come at different days, and so most days there's going to be somebody with a leaf blower around 6 or 7 o'clock somewhere on my street or on the other side of the block. Not my favorite thing, but... I think you could try and coordinate so they're all on the same day, but then that's inconvenient for the gardeners because there's all kinds of complexities there, but there's there's solutions there that aren't necessarily this, which is Disney being the guy with the golden ideas. He conceived of a master plan city that would exist as one pillar of the Disney World complex in Florida. In 1966, he explained... To the Florida legislators, so this is when he's getting permitting for all this, he said the city would be a planned environment demonstrating to the world what American communities can accomplish through proper control of planning and design. And here's what the city would look like. It'd be circular. In the middle, you have a central hub with a convention center. From there, four rings of development would fan out with businesses, houses, apartments, and green space. The rail would have monorail. Disney was obsessed with the monorail he introduced it in 59 at a small scale in Disneyland and wanted to take it into his new city. And he would also make it a company town. All citizens of this futuristic city would be working for a Disney Company or businesses that worked with Disney. That's the weird one to me. Like, if we're talking about the cities that Google or Facebook or somebody could build in connection with Nevada, it'd be pretty challenging to say that. In 78 square miles, everybody living there is going to be working for Google. I can see Elon Musk kind of trying to do that with a Tesla city, right? So you just think of how these businesses operate and what their, their commonplace is. But in this one, it's 1966, and Disney's proposing this. This is surprising, realizing that he's not that far away from some of the stuff we'll talk about later uh, with company towns. So he'd be aware of it. And it didn't seem to bother him what the outcomes were for those. So that's that's very peculiar in his... He may not have known. I mean, to be fair, I, I don't know what he did and didn't know about. But he seems close enough to those things to have known something about them. Regardless of what he knew or didn't know, it eventually became a park that shut off possible tech and not a fully realized company town. So in those conversations, we kind of, they kind of figured out, hey, no, let's not do that. Let's instead do this, where you, you show off your stuff and it's really cool, but don't don't make it a full-on town. The other place we see things like this is, in this, this one makes a little bit more sense because of the transition, and this is in college dormitory structure. So when a college is building out a dorm, they're thinking about the resident safety. They're thinking about where the RA is going to be. They're thinking about how food is in there. And... It, their most dorms don't necessarily have all the stuff you need for a kitchen, right? You might have a hot plate or a microwave, but they kind of expect you to do a lot of your eating um, down in the in the halls, in the food halls. And so that's a different kind of design. And they also are trying to transition somebody to student life. Coming from a parent's home and also kind of get them socialized and acculturated. Like it's just, it's this huge split. So it was surprising um, when a donor for UCSB. So it was kind of surprising when a donor for University of California, Santa Barbara, and a super smart guy in financing, right? Charlie Munger. So he's part of Berkshire Hathaway. It's it's he's the right hand to warren buffett and he's a very smart man financially and he donated money to ucsb for a new dorm but the condition was they had to use his design and by all accounts it was awful i mean it was such a bad design that a consulting architect on the board resigned the mercury news quote him as saying um the basic concept of Munger Hall as a place for students to live is unsupportable from my perspective as an architect, a parent, and a human being. That's California architect Dennis McFadden. And this is a wonderful quote because he is it's an architect saying, this is not a good design, but also it offends me as a parent and a person. Um, and, And one of the reasons why is that this is in Santa Barbara. It's one of the most beautiful beaches in the world. And the rooms have no windows. They, they instead have artificial windows. And Munger compared them directly to Disney cruise ships' artificial portholes where starfish come in and wink at your children. Um, the Santa Barbara Independent has taken to calling the project Dormzilla. The crazy thing is, he's done this before. Charlie's dorms were awful for students in lockdown during the first spasms of COVID. Being locked in a windowless room sounds a lot like another publicly funded institution. But that's prison. And that's a punitive measure. And not supposed to feed a student's soul, get them joy in learning, and give them a comfortable environment. So that, those examples kind of bring us to so, so What? So what about all these examples of institutional attempts at collective living and housing? Why do we care? We talk about them today because in the same way that Charlie Munger proposes these things and Nevada proposes these things, and these things happen super recently with Disney and Epcot City, um, we look to solutions to housing. We've talked about NIMBYism. We've talked about the slow path of government response. We've talked about how land use is tied up And kind of restricted in lots of ways we've talked about how additional dwelling units might help like there's all these different ways that we can look at so as we look at those solutions the next story i want you to keep in mind so we're talking about all those things and we look at them and then look back to the late 1800s to the fully unfettered company towns of the past for clues on how to proceed and what to watch out for for danger We can think about it and decide if it's place we want our investments to be and if we want to give that kind of power to a company. Uh, There's other models that have come out of it. Co-ops, condominiums. I'd even lump HOAs into this in a certain way. Um, That's a seeding of government responsibility to a smaller collective that's just made up of who happens to own the properties. Uh, Apartment buildings have this same thing with the recent Surfside collapse. So we should evaluate the risk in collective events We should evaluate the risk in collective investments and collective living situations and make choices based on what we know from our past and what problems we're trying to solve. So let's get into it. Come on, Poplar. let's do this. Let's get into company towns. Company towns were there to solve a problem. The very beginning, there was a distance to the site and there was nowhere for workers. There There were people who uh, lived in tents near sites. And these sites are um, all kinds of different things and businesses, right? So it's railroads, lumber, all kinds of stuff. So this particular story that we're going to dive into in a minute is going to be about a single company town that caused a nationwide strike, economic disruption, loss of life, and riots over trains and train cars. Um, We're going to talk about how that company... Was trying to solve a problem and used it towards control uh, and there's a thing in this called paternalism and the idea here is that the company knows better than it workers what's good for its workers and it believes it's creating a utopia it believes it's its responsibility to its workers to push them to spend their money and behave in ways that it thinks is best that desire to create a utopia creates perverse incentives and those when they're smashed against capitalism the high idealistic push of the founders bumps into cash and cash often wins so that's what we're going to talk about uh the beginning right so it's late 1800s post-civil war so all of a sudden you don't have slaves that you can use for a lot of this labor that you could before so railroads lumber coal mines Turpentine camps. Like I didn't realize this, but turpentine comes from trees. Um, and they are awful. They, in this period of time, they are awful places to work. So they needed workers. And instead of being able to just buy people and make them do it, which is good that you can't do that anymore, um, they had to set a wage on these things that people would do the job and they could still sell the product for profit, right? So you need that balanced happen um, but being far away from everything it's really hard to entice workers to get there and to bring their families there and decide they're gonna live there for a couple of years so they set up these towns right by the woods being worked right by the lumber mill at a site near the rails by the steel mill steel mill I don't know why I said still like that. Ste- steel. steel 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 mill that was weird okay so they set it up and they make it right there because a lot of these people don't have enough money for cars they don't have the transportation to get there even when they're working on train tracks and train tunnels they could take the train but it wasn't like they were just taking the train as a commute they were putting all their stuff on a flat car and riding it to the job site um the proximity of those camps to the lumber mill the turpentine camp like made it so it was a lot more like farming or a lot more like now when you work from home is that you don't have to waste time commuting. You don't have to waste time going home or going out to lunch or for breakfast or for dinner. But that also means that they could work them grotesque hours. So 12 to 16 hour days were not uncommon. And those camps were set up by the company. So so it's directly tied to your job. If you lose your job, you lose your spot in the camp. Now, if you're just out there and it's just a tent and then you can walk back to town and find another job, that's not as big of a deal. <clears throat> but you also have no infrastructure, right? So there's no municipal services. There's If there is a market, it's probably run by the company as well. If there is food, that kitchen is part of your wages. Like the, the money in the overhead eats into what your actual wages are and you have no real choice. But in these camps, it's not as big of a deal because think about a railroad, right? You're going to be on that camp working on that mile stretch of railroad for a couple months and then you move to another camp. So if, if you're going to switch, you can switch. It's not great working conditions and it's not totally humane, but it's not totally unreasonable. Um, but the next one we're going to talk about is and this is where we leave you for this week we're going to leave you on kind of a cliffhanger we'll come back next week and finish the story and we're going to be talking about the pullman train car company it's going to be very exciting there is awful things in it and there's good things to have conversations about and get into our heads about how we invest and how we think about property like it's it's really strange how close these things are intertwined so from all of us here at poplar thanks so much for listening and if you need property management services go to Poplar.homes pod. Again, that's poplar.homes pod. Bye-bye.